So I'll give you a minute to get there. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murmurs the, murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws, them, draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To, the, to you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Westside. Good morning. It's Labor Day weekend. You could probably be there tomorrow. Amen. You could probably be right there. Well, thank you so much for joining us and worshiping with us this morning. Uh, can we just give a huge shout out and thank God for the people who lead us on a Sunday morning? When it comes to singing out loud, the things that we prepare, uh, all of the preparation and all of the work that goes into it um, provides for us to be able to declare one thing, and that it's all about Jesus. Amen? Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing our journey through Summer in the Psalms. Summer in the Psalms. And I don't know about you, but it's, it's been a while since I've been in the pulpit, and I'm thankful to be in the Psalms this morning because I love the Psalms. Can you raise your hand if Summer in the Psalms have impacted you in some way, shape, or form? Yeah, look around. God's Word doesn't return void. Amen? Amen. So thankful to be here. If you remember last week, we were in Psalm 9. And this week, we are actually in Psalm 10. And if you remember from last week, the big idea from Psalm chapter 9 was this. It was, when I don't know what to do, I must remember what God has done. When I don't know what to do, I must remember what God has done. And historically, a bunch of old dead guys and commentaries basically say that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 basically go together. And so I want you to think of this morning as Psalm chapter 10 as Psalm chapter 9, part 2, okay? Psalm chapter 9, part 2 is what we're doing this morning for Psalm chapter 10. So if Psalm chapter 9 is a reminder for us that if we don't know what to do to remember what God has done, then we see in the content of Psalm chapter 10, David's looking around and he's saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's going on. 
I look at this, if you were listening to the passage and the words that were read to you this morning um, from the pulpit and from Psalm chapter 10, you're, some of you may be thinking to yourselves, man, the guy who's doing all this stuff to these people is a jerk, right? This guy sounds like he is doing something that is highly oppressive and offensive towards the unfortunate and those who are susceptible, the poor, the, the powerless, the fatherless, the helpless, and we'll get into that in a minute. But David finds himself looking at this and he's saying, I don't know what to do. And time after time, as we've seen him done again and again in, in the Psalms, is the first thing that he does is he goes to God in prayer. And he doesn't just go to God in prayer and declare things, but he asks a question. Look down in your Bibles at verse 1 of chapter 10. What's the first word? Say it out loud, all together. One, two, three. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Let's do it again. Second, verse, second part of that verse. One, two, three. Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble. I love that David begins the psalm this way. Um, this is a picture of my wife and I. We have three kids. They're four, two, and three months old, going on four months old. And this is Jessie Ray. She is the coolest four-year-old you'll ever meet in your entire life, okay? And you can tell by the hat and glasses. She hijacks those from me when I come home from work because I dress like I'm 12, and that's what I wear. But Jessie, for many of you guys that know and have kids, she's four... She'll be five soon, and that's the age and the time frame where the toddler starts asking the question, why? They start asking why about every single thing, and Jesse is in this phase right now, and it is hilarious. It's also really irritating, and we, we can also pull the trigger way too fast, too, because I said so. And a lot of times that has its place, and it's a good place. But we're trying to teach our daughter to think for herself and to answer these questions, why? But it's really funny the way that she goes about asking, like, you need to apologize for hitting your brother. Why? You need to eat before we launch into the day. Why? Because you're a tornado of energy, and if you don't eat, you don't have enough energy to destroy the house today. One of my favorite things that she's done recently is this. My wife texted me and said, Jesse's in her why phase, you remember? And I said, yeah. He said, she said, you would not believe what she just did, and she sent me quotes. <clears throat> and Kayla's just in the other room, and she hears Jesse in the other room, and Jesse says, Alexa, why? <laughs> no content, no explanation, no nothing. That's hilarious, and I, I, I love this idea of why. Like a lot of us as believers, we think we outgrow why. It's something we should never outgrow. We should never outgrow the idea of asking ourselves and maybe asking God why. But why do I bring up this illustration of my daughter? Why does David begin with why? And why are we focused on this at the beginning of this sermon? Well, I would submit to you this morning that all of us ask why. Every single one of us is unified in this room. At the end of the night, when we look around the world and we see the awful and horrible things that are being done to people overseas, we see abuse that maybe we have engaged with or maybe suffered at within our family systems. We see the hurt, maybe the loss of trust, the divorce, the, broke, the breakup of the relationship, the visit at the doctor's office, the news on the phone call. And all that we're left with at the end of the night is when we lay down our heads on our pillows, we all ask that same three-letter question. Why? Why? I want to submit to you this morning that we should never stop asking why. Asking why keeps us dependent upon God for answering the hard questions in life. Keeps us dependent upon him for answering the hard questions. And the other thing that, that asking why does for us is that it builds compassion in us, really. I don't know if you noticed, but David isn't really praying for himself in this psalm. He's actually looking at a group of people who have an injustice that's being brought against them and they are being oppressed. And he's asking God, why is it happening to them? 
and he has this compassion. So what's the big idea that we want to work from this morning? The big idea is this. As Christians, we need to have awareness of and action against injustice. Right out of the gate, guys, this is going to be a heavy sermon this morning. So please pray for me and we'll pray for ourselves. Welcome to Westside. It's a very difficult topic, but we're going to launch into it. What we see in the content and the context of this psalm is oppression and injustice. We're going to unpack some of those things, but the biggest thing for us with this idea and with this mindset of asking why, the biggest thing for us as believers is to have an awareness of and action against, we cannot be passive about this, injustices in the world around us. So I see three things in the text this morning that I want to, that I want to break down for us. I see a pair of people, I see a prayer that's prayed, and I see a provider of something. So let's jump right into it and look at the pair of people that we see here. That is both the oppressor and the oppressed. The pair is the oppressor and the oppressed. Before I dive into the characteristics of these two kinds of people, I want to talk about what oppression isn't, and then I want to define it for us in just a few short minutes. So really quickly, what oppression is not is not you leaving church today, driving an hour and a half to go to Cape Girardeau, and realize that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays, and you don't find out until you're sitting in the driveway. That's not oppression, okay? That's a failure for you to Google something and to find out some information, all right? Oppression is not when you post something on social media that you think may even be biblically or theologically accurate, and then somebody disagrees with you, and you fight and spit venom back and forth at one another for 45 comments and give people like me at 8 o'clock at night with a bag of popcorn something to read and laugh at. That's not oppression, okay? That's just a disagreement between two people who don't know how to engage their emotions in a debatable way, okay? Oppression is not being asked to wear a mask. You're not oppressed if you wear one and get sneered for wearing a mask. Oppression is not being asked to get vaccinated. Oppression is not being vaccinated and being criticized for doing so. All of these things are so far removed from oppression that it's hilarious. And we get so bent out of shape thinking that our lives are ruined and turned upside down by these things, when in reality they're just differences of opinion and grievances and we're, uh, we're facing things that we don't really know how to engage with emotionally or in a debatable and healthy way. So what is oppression? What is oppression? I want to do a couple things. I want to look at the Oxford English Dictionary definition because we're nerds and we like to do that here. And then I want to look at what the Bible has to say about oppression. So the, first, the Oxford English Dictionary defines oppression as this. Cruel and unfair treatment of people, especially by not giving them the same rights as others. Seems like a fair definition, right? We can look at human history, global history, American history. We can sort of see that definition come through the woodwork when it comes to what oppression is. But I want to look this morning at what the scriptures have to say and maybe kind of create a working definition for us of what oppression is from a scriptural standpoint. So this word right here, by the way, I'm going to try and pronounce these, and some of these words are Hebrew and some of them are Greek. I don't speak either, so judge me all you want. The, I, this is from blueletterbible.com. You can do this too, I promise. So what, the primary word that we see in the Old Testament for oppression is lachatz, um, and it actually is defined as just general wrongdoing towards others. And then we see in James chapter 2, this Greek word, katadynastuo, bless you, gesundheit. And the definition for that is to exercise harsh control, to use your power over somebody. But specifically here in the psalm, look down at your Bibles in verse 18, the very last verse of chapter 10. It says this, to do justice to the fatherless and to the, say it out loud, oppressed. The word that we see here in the Hebrew, it comes from the root word dak, 
which means something a little bit different than what we see here. It means to be figuratively crushed under the weight of something emotional, but it also means to be physically injured or to suffer from violence. And that's kind of the context that we see in the psalm as you heard the text read to you this morning. So all these kind of dance around an idea, and I want to sort of put language to that idea for us to be able to define oppression this morning. So what is oppression? Oppression is this. Oppression is the use of power so that others remain powerless. Oppression is the use of your influence, your stature, your way of life, your last name, how much money you make, so that others can remain powerless. And so how do we see this in the pair of people that we see here in the text? How do we see this idea that the use of power keeps others remaining powerless? Well, let's look at the oppressor first. Look down at your Bibles. Look down at your Bibles in verses 2, 3, and 4. The oppressor is really identified here as the wicked, but we're using the, we're using the language of oppressor this morning because of all of the actions and what's going on within this person. Verse 2, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. In verse 3, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces God. Verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not see him. Does this guy sound like he's fun at parties? No, this guy does not sound like he's fun at parties. He sounds like a jerk. Uh, but I want to kind of unpack the three things that we see this person doing. The first thing is this. We see them scheming. We see them carrying out schemes. Look down at your Bible again in verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes. Oh, we can try again. It's 10 a.m. Some of us have had two cups of coffee. We should be able to do this. Look down at your Bibles again. Let them be caught in the schemes, it's right there in God's word, that they have devised. We can see this language all peppered throughout here. It's kind of gross. Like, look at verse 8. He sits in ambush in the villages, in the hiding places. He murders the innocent. He lurks, his eyes stealthy, watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush. Sounds like a fox or something, right? Sounds like somebody who is like waiting to pounce. The word that is used for this word schemes is like intentional abuse, all right, this is like first-degree scheming and oppression. It's premeditated, and it's thought out to be carried out. The second thing we see is selfishness. We see selfishness. We don't just see that he's scheming, but he also finds pleasure in doing it. Look at verse 3. The wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and he's greedy for gain, and he curses and renounces God. This is somebody who is attempting to press down and to hurt and to violate others for their own benefit and for their own gain with no regard for anyone else. Why am I unpacking these things? It seems a little far away. It seems a little uh, out of our reach. Well, I think we can relate with this last one. Um, the oppressor's proud. The oppressor is proud. Look there in verse 3. The wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and then right there in verse 4. In the pride of his face... The wicked does not seek him, him being God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. There is no God. Pride is one of those things that is the easiest thing to identify and to accuse in everyone else around us. But the moment that it is identified within ourselves, we shut it down and do not accept it. Can I submit to you this morning that that's pride? That's exactly what pride is. Maybe when somebody comes along in your life and corrects or tells you something, hey, I think you could probably maybe uh, rework this and maybe, maybe uh, uh, 
go about this a little bit different way and you get defensive and you get angry, that's pride. Use some business language if you're at work and the boss says, well, let's circle back around to that. And you get upset and frustrated, that's pride. That's pride. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon has to say about pride and specifically the oppressor here in this text. He says, see the effect of pride. It kept the man from seeking God. It's hard to pray with a stiff neck and an unbending knee. God is not in all his thoughts. As it's written, this man thought much, but he had no thought for God. Amid the heaps of chaff, there was not a grain of wheat. The only place where God is not is in the thoughts of this wicked. This is a damning accusation, for where the God of heaven is not, the Lord of hell is raging and regaining. And if God is not in our thoughts, our shouts will bring us to perdition. What is Charles Spurgeon saying here? What is the text saying? What is the Bible telling us about pride? We say this all the time here at Westside. Pride is just placing yourself in the prominent position. Pride is putting yourself on the throne of God. It's no different than what we saw in the original story, that God originally created everything good and he blessed everything. And the one restriction in light of all of the permissions that God gave our first parents, Adam and Eve, they chose to disobey and rather than worship God, go around him and pridefully try to be God. And I wonder if pride could really be at the center of all of this that we see in the text this morning. Because pride is the, the source of oppression is pride. I think the problem that we see here in the text is not just oppression, it's the source and the root of it, and it's pride. And a lot of us in this morning, a lot of us in this room this morning may be looking at the text and saying, that person sounds awful and they're not fun at parties, but in reality, we can actually look within ourselves and say, I am that person. I am this oppressor. I am somebody who is full of pride. I mean, look at these verses, guys. Look down at your Bible and what it says about the pride of his face. Look at verse 6. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout the generations, I won't meet adversity. Look down at verse 11. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face and he will never see it. Look at verse 13. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart? You seeing a theme here? Are you seeing a pattern that it's not necessarily just the awful things that this person is engaging in? It's not necessarily just the things that we do, but it's the root, it's the conversations we have in our hearts and in our minds. Do you ask yourself these questions? Do you have these things in your heart? Now they'll never find out. This person, this person deserves this. It's time for me to get mine. I have been at it at this job for so much longer than this person, and I deserve this position. Do we engage with these thoughts in our hearts and in our minds? Guys, I want to submit to you this morning that Christians aren't exempt from oppressing other people. We believe that sometimes we live in this fairy tale world where everything is good and sunshine and rainbows. And as believers, we sit a little bit higher than everybody else in the world. We know a little bit more about the things of God and we look down our nose at other people. Guys, that's pride. That's being prideful. And Christians are not exempt from being prideful and from oppressing others. So I want us to ask ourselves some questions this morning. I want us to ask ourselves some questions, but before we do that, I want you to listen to this quote from J.A. Motyer on his commentary on the Psalms. Secular modern people would no doubt be surprised to be told that the root of his wickedness 
is his atheism. And this isn't a consciously reached conviction, but it's actually atheism in practice, which can quite cheerfully coexist with church attendance and reciting of the creed and singing songs and coming to the table on a Sunday morning. It's not so much that the wicked man of Psalm 10 believes that there is no God, but he acts as if there wasn't. And here it is, in all his thoughts, the word that is schemes, as in verse 2, there's no room for God. In the same way, God's laws are far from him. He both distances himself from God's rules and presumes himself immune from their penalties. Do we view ourselves immune? Do we view ourselves exempt from pride and looking down our noses at other people? So I want us to ask us ourselves, I want us to ask ourselves these questions. What is this letter here in yellow? Everybody at the same time. What's this one? What's this one? Do I say these things in my heart? How do I identify with the oppressor in this psalm? And who, not if, but who specifically have I hurt and has been wounded by my pride? I want us to ask us ourselves those questions this morning. So we see these two people. We see the oppressor. Let's move on to the oppressed. The oppressed. Just to really quick revisit our definition of oppression seen in the scriptures. Oppression is this. Oppression is the use of power so that others remain powerless. So we've seen this use of power in the oppressor. Let's look at the powerlessness of those who are oppressed in the text, all right? So let's look at the oppressed. I see three things that the oppressed is identified as here in the text. The first one is helpless. Look at your Bible in verse 10. The helpless are crushed and sink down, and they fall by his might, by the might of the oppressor. I also see that this person is poor, and this is highlighted multiple times in the psalm. Look down at your Bible in verse 9. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket, and he lurks that he may seize the poor. And he seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. And again in verse 2, in arrogance the wicked hotly pursues the poor. What do these sound like? These sound like characteristics and traits of Someone who has no way of defending themselves. Of people who are at the bottom of their rope and there's no knot to stand on. Of people who have been abused and ridiculed or maybe even a position where they are just susceptible to harm and to violence and to the oppression of others. I love this last one, fatherlessness. Look down at your Bible in verse 14 and 18. This is mentioned twice as well. In verse 14, you do see, drop down to that last line, you have been the helper of the fatherless. And then verse 18, to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed. I came across something interesting this week, and I'd heard it before, but I've forgotten all about it. In Jewish culture, the man of the house, the dad, the husband, was sort of the anchor for the home. Not just like spiritually or mentally, but also physically and provisionally. If you, as the man of the house, something happened to you, your wife, your kids, and everybody within your family unit and family system was likely going to be worthless to society and also maybe outcast and looked down upon. So look at these. Helpless, poor, fatherless. What does this tell us about the condition of the world? What does the oppressor and the oppressed tell us? What does oppression tell us? Well, oppression just reveals the condition of humanity. 
Oppression reveals the condition of humanity. Think about the oppressor, a heart so proud and high and lofty that what is required and needed is a dying to self and submission to the authority and the work of Jesus Christ. The oppressor, helpless, poor, and fatherless, sort of like us as Ephesians 2 when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We could do nothing for ourselves, but God, because of his grace and his mercy, made us alive together with God. Christ and saved us by his grace. Oppression reveals the original condition of the human heart. It reveals what is wrong with humanity, and it reveals that something needs to be done. So what can we do about this? Where do you and I come in? We can ask God why. We can be honest. We can depend on God for answers to hard questions. We can be compassionate towards others. We can acknowledge the pride in ourselves and our need and helplessness. So where, where do we do with this? What's our action? Well, as Christians, we have a responsibility to be a voice. Everybody say voice. Voice for the oppressed and against the oppressor. As believers, we have a responsibility, a duty to be a voice for the oppressed, for those who are poor and helpless and oppressed and fatherless, and not stop there. We cannot be passive about oppression. So it's a voice for the oppressed and against the oppressor. So how do we do that? That brings us to our second point of what we see, a prayer. We see the prayer for justice, the prayer for justice. Look down at your Bible right there in verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. And here's some prayer language. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. Arise, O Lord, in verse 12. Lift up your hand. In verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none more, until you find no more wickedness in him. Uh, this is a picture of a woman. Uh, this is a picture of a woman named Nadia Murad. In 2014, uh, uh, ISIS attacked an Iraqi village of a culture called Yazidis. Can you guys say that? Yazidis? I don't know how to pronounce that, but Yazidis. And she was actually captured by a member of ISIS, and it's Family Sunday, so read between the lines. She was, she was abused and violated on a daily basis, every single day. Now, about four years later, she escaped from that lifestyle, and she became a humanitarian and someone who fought for women's rights and human rights. And she met this man, Dr. Dennis McQuiggy who is nicknamed Dr. Miracle. And the two of them in 2018, they won a, a Nobel Peace Prize together. And Dr. McQuiggy is actually a, a, a surgeon who actually has done repair and reconstructive surgery and repairing surgery on women's bodies who have been violated and have been, uh, have been hurt on a, repeated, uh, on a repeated basis. And he's a Christian. And he's quoted with saying this after receiving the Nobel Peace Prize with Nadia Murad. He said this, as long as our faith is defined by theory and not connected with practical realities, we shall not be able to fulfill the mission entrusted to us by Christ. If we are Christ's, we have no choice but to be alongside the weak, the wounded, the refugees, and the men and women suffering discrimination, violence, and abuse. Why am I telling you this story? It's a great story about someone who was abused and a hero who came along and, and made their life better for thousands of people. Well, Dr. McQuiggy did what he was equipped to do. 
Dr. McQuiggie was equipped as a doctor and as a surgeon to enter into brokenness and pain and destruction and repair and make things better. Now, I know we don't, we're, this room isn't full of PhDs and people who can uh, handle a scalpel and sutures and all of that stuff, but we are equipped to do something as believers. We have something that we can do and enter into and engage with brokenness around us, and that is prayer. That is prayer for justice. There are a couple kinds of prayers throughout the Psalms. There's thanksgiving, there's adoration, there's uh, lament and petition. We've heard about lament quite a few times already. And petition is what some of the prayers that we see in this Psalm really are. Uh, petition is just asking God to grant us something, whether it's for ourselves or someone else. And petition is the kind of prayer that we're all really familiar with because a lot of times we sit down and we just go through our laundry list of things that we want God to do for us. Uh, but what I love about David's petition is that he's praying for someone else, right? He's praying for something that's going on outside of himself. So if the thing that we can do is pray, if we have a responsibility to be a voice for the oppressed and against the oppressor, what should we pray? What are the things that we should pray? The first is this. We ask God to remember the oppressed. We see David doing this right here in verse 2. In arrogance... The wicked hotly pursue the, I'm sorry, verse 12. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. And here it is. Forget not the afflicted. Do not forget them. Now, is God a forgetful God? Everybody said, no. God is not a forgetful God. God's word says that before you were born and formed in your mother's womb, he knew you. And every single hair on the head of every single person in this room, whether you don't have hair or whether you do, is numbered. God loves you and cares intimately for every single person in humanity, past, present, and future. God does not forget. But David feels compelled to ask God why and then to ask God to remember. Ask God to remember those who are oppressed. He puts his hope in God. And we can do the same thing. We can look around in our lives and, and see who in the world is hurting, who in the world is, is marginalized, and who is taken advantage of. It is okay to ask God, why is this happening to them? And it is okay to say, God, it seems like you've forgotten them, and I know you haven't, but please remember them. Remember them in their affliction. The second thing that I see that we can pray for is this, not just to remember the oppressed, but justice for the oppressor. Justice for the oppressor. Look at verse 13. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Here it is. But you do see. You note mischief and vexation that you, that you may take it into your own hands. And then here in verse 15, we see some strong language. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Language that essentially means remove power from them or even remove them from the earth. Call his wickedness to account until you find wickedness no more. And then the last part of verse 18. So that the man who is of the earth, the oppressor, may strike terror no more. We don't just pray for those who are hurting, but we pray against the actions and the heart, the root heart of pride in those who are oppressive. We pray against those things as Christians. So as Christians, if we have a responsibility to be a voice for the oppressed, and against the oppressor, that means that we have an opportunity now. It's not a future opportunity. It's an opportunity right now. This afternoon when you get in your vehicles, tonight when you sit down with your kids and with your families or your husband or your wife, you remember and you think and then you speak out loud and pray and ask God to remember those people and to deliver them from their oppression and against the oppressor. 
So I got a couple questions that you can ask yourselves that we can all ask ourselves right now. Does my heart break for those who are broken? Guys, we live our lives in a culture and in a time where the furthest that we can see is about this far. And we have the illusion of being in community. We have the illusion of having an idea of what is going on across the ocean. We have an idea of what we think compassion is. But at the end of the day, does your heart break for brokenness? Does our heart bleed and ache for those who are in pain? For those who cannot seem to escape the diagnosis from the doctor? from those who cannot seem to escape oppression in other countries and fall off of aircraft because they're trying to get out of a place of deep oppression? Does it break us? Secondly, do I pray for them? Do I lift my voice? Do I cry out to God and ask Him to remember them and to deliver them? Do I ask myself these questions? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., when he was in the Birmingham jail, jail, wrote a letter, and this is an excerpt from his letter in terms of the urgency that it takes not just to pray but also to seek action against injustices. Listen to these words. He said, I had hoped that the moderate man would see this. Perhaps I was too optimistic. Perhaps I expected too much. I suppose I should have realized that few members of those oppressors can understand the deep groans and passionate yearnings of those that they oppress. And still, fewer have the vision to see that injustice must be rooted out by strong, persistent, and determined action. Action. For many of us in this room, the action that we take is prayer. But where's our hope for justice? Where is our hope for the oppressed in the world? That brings us to our third point. We see the provider of justice, the one who will bring out strong, persistent, and determined action. Look at your Bible in verse 13. Verse 13, it says, Why, again, does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? Verse 14, I want you to circle these two words, but you, but you. You, circle those in your Bible and then underline as much as you can without blotting out the text. Do see. But you do see. You, this is God. This is, this is talking about God's characteristics and what he's thinking about and that he's not absent. David is encouraging himself in this prayer and reminding himself, God, but you do see. You note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless man commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer and call his wickedness to account. And in verse, excuse me, verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations, those nations that do not believe in him or reject in him, perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth will strike terror no more. This is good news in a broken and hurting world full of darkness. Amen? This is a good God who says, I know it seems like I'm not present. I know it seems like that I'm not here, but I am. And at the end of the day, when judgment comes, nobody gets away with anything. Nobody gets away with their selfish ways and, and thinking these things in their hearts. 
that they'll never find out, or these people deserve this, or I'm taking this from them because I deserve it. How does God bring about this kind of justice? Because when we talk about justice, like, who gets to define that, right? Like, is it a congressman? Is it a senator? Is it someone you write a letter to? Is it you on social media? Is it what we hear on television or on the radio? Is it people who pick it? I mean, what, what is it? Who gets to define justice? And not just that, like, who carries it out? Who is able to carry out such a heavy thing as justice and bringing rightness back into the world? Well, I want to jump back to verse 7 and verse 8 of Psalm chapter 9. You may need to turn back a page in your Bible. Since this is, since this is part 2 of Psalm chapter 9, I want to revisit Psalm chapter 9, verse 7 and 8. Look at these words talking about God's righteousness and His justice. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. I think a lot of us have, uh, in 2021 and in Western American culture, and, and just speaking English, uh, rather, like we, we sort of separate these two ideas of justice and righteousness. We think justice is just somebody being you know, punished for their wrongs, and righteousness is someone who's good all the time and never does anything wrong. But people in Jewish culture and Jewish history would have seen these two words as a joint characteristic and trait of God. They would have seen it as a joint characteristic and trait of God. And I'm just going to blast through two things really quick for the nerds who care. It revolves around the law and the covenant. They saw justice in the law. The law was just right living with the ways that God instructed the people to live. And when that was broken, they had to be brought to justice, to be brought back to the goodness of the law. Romans chapter 3 says that the law, purpose of the law serves to close everybody's mouth in this room, that we're not good enough, that we can't uphold it or fulfill it. So we can't be just by our own nature, so we can't define justice. But then the other thing that they would have seen is God's righteousness came through the covenant. We see law with justice and then the covenant with righteousness. And the covenant would have been seen as just right standing in the future promise that God gave to his people. But since we break our justice and we break God's law, we can no longer stand in the future promise of God's covenant. So we can keep neither of these. So the source of justice and the source of righteousness cannot come from us. Those are traits and characteristics of God himself. And they are unified because God is fully righteous and God is fully just. The only one who is so holy and righteous he cannot even look at sin. And the only one who is so just that the law that he creates brings about perfection for humanity if it's kept. We also see it in Christ. We also see it in Jesus. We fail at both of these things, but God's the only judge. He's the only one that can provide both. He's the righteous judge. So what do we do? Where do we look for hope? Where do we look for justice and for righteousness when we look at the world around us and we see brokenness in our families and we ask why when our heads are on our pillows at night? Well, I would submit to you that it's this. We find hope in both the promises and the character of God. Just like in Psalm 9, we look back and we see what God has done. We see the promises that he has made. We see the promises that he's made in his word and we see his character. We see God's righteousness and God's justice. And that is the rack in which we hang our hat on. That is our hope. That is where we find holy and good justice and 
righteousness. We find our hope in the promises and character of God. I've got a couple things I want to read to you in closing. I'm going to invite the band up to come and lead us in a time of response. Listen to this quote from Dane Ortland from In the Lord I Take Refuge. He says, God will one day right all wrongs. He will straighten out all that is bent and rinse this world clean of all injustice. And how do we know this? Because in the middle of human history, God proved the lengths to which he was willing to go to undo justice. He sent his own son, the one man who was ever truly just, to go to a cross and swallow all of the injustices of all those who would simply trust in him. Does this mean that we can overlook injustices committed against the helpless today? No, absolutely not. On the contrary, it means that we are freshly empowered and motivated to fight the horrors of this world, knowing that the horror of our own sin has been justly wiped away by sheer grace in the work of Christ received by faith. That is good news this morning. Good news, of, of good news for those of us who identify with the oppressed, for those of us who lay down at night and ask, why is this happening? God, you seem far away. I know you're close, but why? For those of us who identify, as all of us should, with the oppressor, saying these things in our hearts, they'll never find out. They deserve this. I deserve this. Those people. For those of us who say those things in our hearts, we identify with this. And as believers, we know as we have a responsibility to cry out, to be a voice for the oppressed and against the oppressor. And that prayer is a prayer for justice. It's God, remember those who are hurting. God, bring to justice like only you can the ones who are doing the hurting. And ultimately, our hope remains in your promises, God, and in your character. I want you to stand to your feet this morning, and I got four questions for you. Number one, where do I see oppression? news? Is it on social media? Is it within my family? Is it across the street? Is it on the other side of town? Where do I see it? Number two, who have I hurt with my pride? Who has suffered loss at my expense? Number three, what injustice will I pray for this week? Who are those that are oppressed and marginalized and helpless that I will pray for? lastly, is my hope in the promises and character of God, or is it in myself and my action? As Christians, we need to have awareness of and action against injustices in the world. I'd like you to close your eyes just for a moment as I read 11 verses from Romans chapter 12 in closing. And when I'm done reading this, I'm just going to say amen. I want this to sit with us to remember that we have to have an awareness of and action against injustices in the world. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Close your eyes and listen to these words. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in your zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in your hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. 
Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen? Amen. If you're a baptized follower of Jesus Christ, we would encourage you to come to the table as you feel led. Take the elements with you back to your seat, and we will take communion together. Let's respond in song.